turning to Matthew chapter 12. So I've talked to, uh, well, Jacob, Maria this morning. I talked to Maria. Sorry, I don't have a, a speaker oh, okay. on in here. I'll try to speak loud enough for you guys. Anyway, I, I, I phoned Jacob and Maria this morning. I talked to Maria. Um, apparently, Jacob's doing better than he had been. Um, and she said they might come out next week to join us, so we'll see. It'd be nice to see them back with us again, too. Anyway, Matthew chapter 12, uh, I'm going to start in verse 31. It says, Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, Chris is at the back distracting me, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to start again. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good, and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt, and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we just want to commit this time to you. And again, I'm thankful for each person who has joined us this morning and just for the love and joy we can share in serving you um, and looking into your word, Lord. And, and so again, we just ask that you would guide this morning, help me um, as I speak this morning, give me words to speak and uh, help me to be clear in the things that I say. Just ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. And again, I have to try to remember that there are no speakers in here to <laughs> for you guys to hear me, so I'll try to, to speak to you. But as I, as I was looking at this passage this week, I actually kind of wanted to skip this and just move on to what comes next, because this is one of those passages, um, it's hard to know exactly what to say about it, but I did, I felt God was pressing me to, to preach those things that I'm not comfortable preaching. <laughs> And I've done, I've done that a few times, and for better or worse. But this isn't hard to preach to a person. This is just hard to know what to preach. Um, but I look at this passage, and I, I see it's a continuation of what just took place and what we've been talking about the last few weeks. And the Pharisees came to Jesus as he was healing, and they've accused him of 
casting out devils by the power of the devil, claiming that he himself has a devil in him. And Jesus' response to that, we got into a little bit last week, talked about a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, and that was in regards to if the devil's casting out devils, then he's working against himself. And it just wasn't logical. And this passage that we've read this morning just carries on his thoughts on that topic. Um, so we didn't stop at the end of his, of his answer. He's carried on here. So that's kind of the context uh, that we're dealing with. He says, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. What a broad statement that, that is, isn't it? That all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. And yes, I know the next phrase that he says, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And I'm going to try to come back to that part after. Um, I just want to talk about this statement that all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. And I'm going to jump to the bottom here because he deals with this idea of sin and forgiveness and judgment through this whole path. And the last couple of verses come to talks about the judgment. And so I'm going to talk about forgiveness and judgment before I come back to this unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. Can you think of sins that in your mind shouldn't be forgiven? Can you think of people who have committed such atrocities that you think that person should not be forgiven? That person should never have access to eternal life, to forgiveness. If you're saying no, it's because you, you know the truth of the gospel. But in our natural mind, I'm sure there's many times where we see some news article or hear something on the news of something that somebody has done, some horrific thing to other people. Could we forgive that person? Do we think that per do we honestly think that person deserves forgiveness? And of course, they don't deserve forgiveness, but we know that God is good and that He's willing to forgive, no matter what that sin is. And I think um, the Second World War has been a great example of that in all of our lifetime, because it was such a major event. And the things that took place um, through Hitler and the things that he did and caused to happen to the Jewish people was one of those things where people often feel that they should not be forgiven. There is no way that a man like Hitler should ever be able to go to heaven because it was just too terrible, the things that he did. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? I find maybe young people in particular, but I'm sure this is true of people of all ages, 
maybe young people and particularly old people, <laughs> um, sometimes get the idea that they don't deserve to be forgiven. That they are too bad, they have done too much wrong, they've rejected God too much for them to ever be forgiven. And I would, if, if, you, if you ever consider yourself to be unforgivable, if something that you have done in your mind bothers you so much that you feel like you just can't be forgiven for that thing, in all honesty, you know what you're saying is that not that your sin is too bad, but that Jesus wasn't good enough is what the true thought behind that is. And we need to be very careful when we start to get that attitude of if I'm, if I'm too bad, if I've done too much wrong to be forgiven, what you're saying is Jesus isn't good enough to forgive you. And Jesus is certainly good enough to forgive. If you want to turn over to John chapter 8 with me for a moment, I just want to look at this story just briefly. John chapter 8, and I'll just start at the beginning of the chapter, and I'll read this, this story here. It says, Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman is taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I thought this is an interesting passage regarding forgiveness. These men bring this woman to Jesus with the intent of trapping him. <laughs> But they're making this accusation against her. She's committed this sin, and she needs to be punished for it. And the law says we should stone her. We need to kill this woman to pay for her sin. And Jesus' response is, okay, go ahead, essentially. But only if you're without sin. And amazingly, 
each of these people had to honestly consider their own hearts at that answer. And not one could throw a stone. Can you imagine how tempted they were to deny their own sin? Because that's really their heart was to deny that. They were trying to find accusation against others. But Jesus' words made them consider their own hearts, their own lives, and every one of them walked away, leaving just the woman that was being accused of this particular sin. And she's the one that got forgiveness. Do you think Jesus, even as a man, not knowing, you know, take, take away his deity and knowing the lives, the hearts, the actions of these people, knowing their sin, but just as a man, do you think Jesus could have said this to them and thought there might be a risk that somebody would still throw a stone? <laughs> Absolutely not. There is no question that unless the person was so deceitful in their own hearts that they had ignored their own sin, there was no chance of any one of those people throwing a stone. And that's how Jesus was able to say, go ahead, if... <laughs> And there's that condition, if, if you're without sin, you can throw that stone. And he knew that there was no chance. And hopefully everybody knows Romans 3.23 very well. I'm going to, I should quote it, but I'm just going to turn and read it. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. conversation recently about a, a lost person and their attitude towards the gospel, towards God and this life. And that attitude is an attitude of they're focused on the here and now, living for today, and aren't concerned about eternity. But eternity is what, the, the here and now is what gives us a chance to have a good eternity. Romans 3.23 is the answer to, you know, Jesus knew that none of these men could possibly throw a stone because he knew the truth of this verse, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In that same chapter, in verse 10, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. When we focus and we put our emphasis on the world today, the life that I'm living today, if I'm depending on the life that I'm living to give me the results of my eternity, I don't have much to lean on, do I? And Jesus knew that very well. This passage in Romans 
is quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, the first three verses of each of those two psalms, are almost word for word copies of each other. And then this, again, is just quoting those two psalms. And there's numerous times where, where Jesus quotes it in part, or at least he quotes the emphasis of the verses in Matthew uh, chapter 19, this man comes to him and calls him good master. And Jesus responds, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Now was Jesus saying that he, the person was wrong, that he wasn't good? No. He's saying, if you're calling me good, you also are calling me God. You're acknowledging his deity by calling him good. And if you're going to call him good and don't believe that, then you've made an error. But Jesus is quoting the principle taught in these two Psalms when he, sends, when he answers that. There is none good, no, not one. But in Matthew chapter 12, in our passage that we read, verse 31 says, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. We acknowledge that all have sinned. We've all come short. There's none good. But Jesus is saying there's, going to, there's a way that all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven. There is no sin too bad that it can't be forgiven. There's no life lived so horrible that it can't be forgiven. And the question, do we deserve forgiveness? Definitely we don't. The whole point, the whole teaching of the gospel is that we don't deserve forgiveness, that we deserve to be punished. We deserve judgment. Romans, I should have stayed in Romans, but... Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But it does also give the, the solution, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But the wages of sin, how much sin does it take to earn that penalty, to earn that judgment? Is it a life of murder, a life of robbery? Is it a life of <laughs> adultery? Are, is, it, is it an ongoing perpetual sin, an ongoing ignoring God's law, an ongoing disregard for the law? It's a sin. It's a lie. A one-time taking of something that didn't belong to you. Any single time of disobeying any of God's law, you now have a debt, and that debt is death. I want to turn to Revelation chapter 20, if you want to continue following me there.
the last few verses in, in Revelation 20 talk about this judgment. Verse 11 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up their dead, the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And when we attach this to Romans 6, 23, it says the wages of sin is death. And it's not just our physical death in this life that that's referring to. But we can compare it to this verse 14. It says, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. There's an eternal conscious death, this eternal judgment and torment in this lake of fire that is the result of sin. And the wages of sin, it doesn't have to be plural. Any single sin, we have that debt that had to be paid. And that's either going to be through Christ or in this way are paying it ourselves for eternity. But there's an interesting um, wording in, in these passages. It said he opens the books and another book. The other book is the book of life. If your name wasn't written in the book of life, as in you've trusted Christ as your Savior, if your name was there, you get a pass on this judgment. But if your name isn't there, then we're going to look at the other books, and we're going to be judged according to the things that are in those books, and it says according to their works, which means that God's keeping track of everything that everybody does. And it's written in his books. And you're going to be judged according to your works. And if your name isn't in that book of life, you're judged according to your works. Now, and you're going to be cast into that lake of fire. Judgment is based on the things that we do, the things that we did that we shouldn't do, and the things that we didn't do that we should have done, basically. But I just want to, again, look at a couple of this idea of being judged according to our works and the extent to what that goes. Um, chapter 22 in Revelation in verse 12. It says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Jesus, 
God judges according to our work. And maybe the context of that one isn't exactly the same as, as what I'm trying to say here. But we're going to turn, I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 16. There are numerous places you could turn. I just picked a couple. Matthew chapter 16 is one example of this. This idea of being judged according to our works. Matthew 16, verse 27. It says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. That's the same statement that we just saw in Revelation 22. Reward every man according to his works. And back in Matthew 11, we see a similar statement. It says in verse 21 to 24, It says, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And he says a similar thing regarding Sodom and Gomorrah in the next verses. He's comparing one place to another, one group of people to another group of people, and how they responded. Both are lost. Both are being judged. But he says, it'll be more tolerable for one than the other in the day of judgment. They're going to be judged according to their works, according to the things that they did. And one judgment, apparently, is going to be harsher than another judgment. And we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 12 just to kind of clarify that a little bit more. Luke chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 36 in Luke chapter 12. It says, And you yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord, when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants, whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you, that he shall gird himself, and make them to sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. And if he come, and if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched, and not have suffered his host to be broken through. Be therefore ready also. For the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us, or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. 
Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But, and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men's servants and maidens, and to eat and drink and be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For whosoever, for unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Now, I'm just going to back into that a little bit. This is a description, it's, it's a difficult description, and there could be different applications to it, but I see three basic people being judged here, and one who is rewarded. Blessed is that servant whom, in verse 43, blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. What, doing what? It's watching. The, the previous verse, the previous verses describe that. Verse 37 says, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. The blessing, the blessed one, is that one that is actually paying attention, watching, and doing what he was supposed to do when the Lord returned, right? And there's a description of these three others. And this is kind of to, to show the, the concept of this um, degrees of judgment upon people based on their works, based on their actions. And the first one says, but if that servant say in his heart, in verse 45, my Lord delayeth his coming and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, to eat and drink. Do you see the result of that attitude? Is It's a complete disregard for that return. The, and if you look at that just from, if I try to make that a person in the world, this is a person who just ignores God. <laughs> they know the truth about God, but they ignore it, and they go and live a life of sin. And it says, when the Lord of that servant shall come and will cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. This is the harshest judgment of the three that we see here. Is a person who knows, but just has complete disregard. The second, verse 47 that servant which knew his Lord's will, but prepared not himself, neither did according to his will. It says it shall be beaten with many stripes. So the second person also knows, he knows the truth, and maybe intends to someday, 
changed his life, right? To someday acknowledge God, but just hasn't done that yet. But they're still judged, and it says we'll be beaten with many stripes. But the third person, verse 48 says, but he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes. So we have a person who doesn't know the gospel, doesn't know the truth about God and Christ. And that person, in their lack of knowledge, breaks the law. He does things worthy of judgment, but not knowing the law. So it's worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes, as opposed to the person who knew and didn't prepare, will be beaten with many stripes. The judgment on the person with more knowledge that still rejects the gospel, that judgment is going to be harsher than the person who didn't know the gospel. I think about that as we talk with family members and we share the gospel. Some days I wonder if, I, if our family members who we've shared the gospel with would have been better off having never heard. <laughs> because once we've shared it with them, they have that knowledge and they're still rejecting Christ. Their judgment is going to be worse than had they never heard. What a, what a terrifying thought that can be. I wonder if that could be used to, to try to convince those people of their need. The need to respond and just think of children and spouses and these people that we, that we know who acknowledge that this is truth but don't want to submit to that at this point, right? The need there is so urgent. And our passage in, in Matthew 12, again, confirms that same concept. The last couple of verses. It says, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. We're going to be judged according to the things that we say and do. There appears to be... Now, it's not to say that one person's judgment is going to be easier, like... Hell is not going to be a big deal for, for one person. <laughs> it, that's not what this is saying at all. But it's going to be worse for others. <laughs> it's hard to, to grasp exactly how that can be. But. but just to finish off with this last thought about this unforgivable sin. What is the unforgivable sin? And it talks about this blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. And I've, there seems to be this great mystery over what this blasphemy against the Holy Ghost is. But in the context of this passage, we see that these 
people have accused Jesus of having a devil, that he is casting out devils and doing healing, doing miracles, because he has a devil in him. Through the power of Satan, he's doing these things. And he says, bless me against me, bless me against Jesus, could be forgiven. But bless me against the Holy Ghost, cannot be. And if you remember back in Matthew 3, when Jesus was baptized, it described that the Holy Ghost came on him. <laughs> Jesus is anointed by the Holy Ghost. It's the power of the Holy Ghost that in him is doing these things. And so when these people are accusing Jesus of, ha of doing these things by the devil, they're actually pointing to the Holy Ghost that's in him, that's working through him as being the devil. They're blaspheming, not Jesus. They're blaspheming the Holy Ghost when they're making this accusation against him. And I think, I would, I would think, just from my understanding of the gospel and Christ's sacrifice, at any point when anybody rejects Christ, if you continue in that rejection through your life and you die in that condition, that is now an unforgivable sin, right? You, you can no longer be forgiven because you've rejected Christ. But it seems that this is very specific in that area of that not just rejecting Christ from these people's perspective, but rejecting the power that's in him and claiming that to be something that it's not. Claiming that that's evil when it is actually God working through him. And Jesus kind of builds on that in the middle verses here. Verse 33 says, Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and the fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. It says, look at what I'm doing. Look at my life. Look at what you can see me do and judge according to truth. Is the tree corrupt? Is what's providing the fruit? That's the spirit, right? And that's where he's going is the source of the fruit is the tree. The fruit is people are being healed. Devils are being cast out. If the fruit is good, the tree has to be good. Don't say it's a corrupt tree producing good fruit. If the fruit is good, then the tree must also be a good tree. And that's defining that in Jesus, what's producing the fruit in him has to be good. It can't be evil producing this good fruit of people being healed and devils being cast out, lives being changed. If we call that evil, we've blasphemed the Holy Ghost. We've called evil good, or evil good and good evil. And that seems to be what he's describing as blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. You could deny Christ as a man without doing that, apparently. I, don't, I can't grasp how that could be done, but it's, he's not worried about himself as a man. He says, I can forgive that. But look at the fruit. 
and don't call the source of that fruit, that good fruit, evil, because it's good. It's God producing that fruit. Do we need to worry about... People worry that somehow, accidentally, they may commit this unforgivable sin. People worry about this, that they could lose their salvation by doing something to, to commit this unforgivable sin. That's not what this is teaching. This is teaching that denying Christ, denying his deity, denying the power of God in him is that unforgivable sin. You cannot... People who deny that Christ was God in the flesh cannot be saved because they've denied the Holy Ghost. That's the unforgivable sin. Not, not anything else. And so without denying that, denying who he is, who he said he is, and there's a lot of that goes on in our world today, trying to discredit his deity, um, and so churches that are going that direction, there's a, there's a real danger there. But, but for those of us who believe in Christ as the Son of God, believe that as the Son, he is a part of the Trinity, part of the Godhead, then you don't need to worry about committing this unforgivable sin. It's not something that you can do in that condition. Anyway, I hope that was clear enough. We'll pray and close here. Lord, we just uh, just love you and uh, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the sacrifice and the forgiveness that's available through him, Lord. Um, thank you that once we've trusted in that, we don't have to fear the judgment. We don't have to worry about these degrees of judgment, um, the depth of eternity and suffering that we might face, Lord. But we just ask that you would help us to have an urgency in our desire to share that gospel with our friends, with our family members, with our co-workers, people that we meet along the way, Lord. Help us to desire that they would be free from that judgment as well. And we just ask that you would be with each one. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.